from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. We're going to be in John chapter 15. We'll begin in verse 1 in just a moment and read down to verse 11. Uh, since 1950, North Carolina has become a leader, leading producer of grapes. Did you know that? You, you probably did. And I think also because of the grapes, it kicks us over into the wine category as well. Many tobacco fields that once populated uh, rural roads in North Carolina have now been turned into vineyards. You can see them uh, throughout North Carolina. You drive up 421 to Boone, and I don't know why I keep making that trip here recently. Uh, you can see all kinds of vineyards on, on your way up there. And part of that is because in North Carolina, Yakin Valley, I think, is the top area. I think if, if the statistics are correct that I read, that in our area, there's 1.4 million acres now that are devoted towards uh, growing grapes. Apparently, our climate is very similar to uh, the vineyard areas of, of Europe. Again, who knew? I didn't, but... but uh, we, we do, and so we have a lot of vineyards. Now, vineyards are kind of new to North Carolina, but vineyards are not new. In fact, vineyards are old. They are ancient. Bible trivia time, all right? I do not have gold stars. I need to get some. The first appearance, the first mention of vine or vineyard in the Bible occurred when? Anybody want to guess? Anybody want to guess a book? Genesis. Very good, Greg. I mean, Greg, Greg went for it. He's like, well, if it's old and ancient, I'm just going to go for Genesis. And now he's going to tell me it was in chapter... Chapter, 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 chapter 9. Yes, it was in chapter 9. <laughs> Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. This is the first mention of vineyard in Scripture. It tells us that Noah planted a vineyard. Now, from the time that Noah plants a vineyard in Genesis chapter 9, going all the way through Scripture, vineyards are very important. I mean, they, they are important, obviously, for the agricultural reason. They produce the grapes. The grapes can be turned into wine, which was a safe liquid to drink at that time. Okay, All the water wasn't safe, so turning the grapes into, vine, or into wine, you knew that the wine that you were drinking was safe. You wouldn't get sick. Also... Vineyard becomes a very important metaphor throughout Scripture. What we are going to see and what we're going to learn is that the vine often becomes a symbol for Israel. Becomes a symbol for Israel. So when we come to, to John chapter 15, to Jesus' last I am statement, and he says, I am the true vine. He is using something that the people around him, his disciples, and all the Jews would understand the metaphor. Because Israel has been the vine. But when Jesus says it, something very different is about to take place. So let's read God's word in John chapter 15, verse 1, down to verse 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. As we study through this passage this morning, I want you to notice just three truths that that we, we discover. And the first one is this. Jesus is the center of God's plan of salvation. Jesus is the center of God's plan of salvation. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Gary, I think I already knew that. Well, good, good. So the truth is still there. The point still remains. But Jesus makes this in a way that is, we understand, but it's a pivotal turn in the history of Israel. This is his last and seventh I am statement, right? And each statement we've seen starts with I am the, those, those three words. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when we come to this passage and to this seventh I am, there's a couple differences in the way that Jesus states it. He says, I am the true vine. Do you catch the difference? It's the adjective. He puts the word true in front of vine. Okay? If there is something that is true, by necessity, there means that there is something that is what? False. That somewhere out there, there is a false vine. What is the false vine? Good question. Here's the answer. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. You can turn there or you can follow along. This is Isaiah speaking from what the Lord has spoken to him. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, what did it, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel." 
And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. When you read those words in Isaiah chapter 5, and then you get down to verse 7, where he explicitly says, For the vineyard of Yahweh is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. We see very clearly that the Old Testament, that Israel was God's vineyard. And he says, look at what I've done for you, right? It starts off. How many of y'all planted a garden? And before you planted your garden, you went out and you hoed it and you raked it and you, you fertilized it and you got rid of the weeds and then you, you put in the seeds and you put on the cage for the tomato vines and you put up the fence to keep the deer out. You did everything that you could do so that your, your vineyard would grow or your, your plants would grow. And God says, I did all this, but something happened. They didn't grow. They didn't produce grapes. What, what does that mean? Well, what that means was that in the Old Testament, the way that you came to God was you had to come through Israel. If you were not part of the covenant community and you wanted to be part of the covenant community, you had no choice but to go to Israel and become part of the covenant community. We see this beautifully demonstrated by the words of Ruth, right? Y'all remember Ruth's beautiful declaration? Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. How does Ruth come to God? She comes through God through the nation of Israel. Israel was tended and cultivated and planted so that people outside the covenant, so people far away from God could come to God. And he says, I've done everything that should happen. I've given you the ways. I've told you. I've tended you. People should be coming to you. And and when people would come to, to Israel, think about what they had to do. They would have to re- offer the proper uh, sacrifices. They would have to observe the correct festivals. I'll just put it this way. Men had an extra requirement placed upon them to be part of the community. That's how you did it. And what was supposed to happen is Israel was supposed to bear fruit, produce new members in the community, in the covenant community, by their witness. But did you notice what happened They grew wild grapes. I was driving down our road the other day, and I said to Lily, I was like, Lily, look at all the wild blackberry bushes. A whole bunch of them on the side. She goes, yeah, we're going to have to come pick those and and have some blackberry cobbler. I was like, yes, yes, we will. All right, now, we've all picked wild blackberries. They're pretty good. You know, they taste different than cultivated blackberries. That's not the type of grapes here. These wild grapes were not just grapes that you would go pick. They were, they were poisonous and they produced a noxious smell. They were not good for anything. What happened? Israel became a degenerate vine. They weren't doing what they were supposed to. So Jesus steps up and he says, why? He doesn't say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. 
I am the true vine. Everything that God was doing in Isaiah 5 was pointing forward to me so that I can stand to you and say to you right now that I am the true vine. And in God's vineyard, did you notice in Isaiah chapter 5 again, he said the men of, of Judah were, let me make sure I get the right wording, the men of Judah, his pleasant planting. Jesus comes and says, no, I want you to understand right now in God's vineyard, there's one vine. There's, there's only one vine now. There is only one way to come to God. And it is no longer through Israel. It is only through Jesus. So until the time was right, as it tells us in Galatians 4, 4, that, that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under a law to redeem those who were under the law. Until that time came, Israel was the vine. Israel was the vineyard. You came to God through Israel. Jesus says, no, the time is now. There is only one vine. I am the true vine. If you want to come to God, you come through me. There is no other way. You may think, well, that doesn't really impact me. It does. Well, I mean, first of all, salvifically. But secondly, it's why we can worship here in, in Germantown. It's why we don't have to be in Jerusalem to worship this morning. It's why you're not packing up to make a transatlantic flight to, to worship at a feast. It's why you're not bringing me a sheep. Because you would leave with the sheep. Right? I mean, we, we need to understand that. We don't have to go through the nation of Israel anymore for salvation. We go through Jesus now for our salvation because He is the center of God's plan for salvation. And if you've been tracking along in John, and I hope you have, right? We've seen that Jesus is, is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than Moses. He is greater than the feast. And now he is saying he is greater than Israel because he alone is the center of the people or of access to God. It is only through him. And he says to the people, I am the true vine. Then he adds something else to his I am statement that's not in the others. Did you catch that as well? I am the true vine. And what's he say after that? And my father is the vine dresser. So secondly, this morning, I want you to notice that the father works so his children produce fruit. The father works so his children produce fruit. Jesus is the true vine. And I think what we do is we skip over the last part of verse 1, and we, we don't recognize the importance of verse, the end of verse 1. Right? We just want to get, Jesus is the true vine. Yeah, I got it. We abide. Like, hold on. <laughs> there, there's, there's an important clause in there as well. And it says that the Father is the vine dresser. And that's important to know because it is the Father, not Jesus, that does the work in verse 3 and verse 4. Right? Jesus goes on and saying, right? He says, Look, I'm the vine, you are the branches. But it is the Father who tends to the branches, to the branches that are in Jesus. Now, we, we've seen this over and over throughout John's gospel, right? Believers are in Jesus, Jesus is in believers. We are in the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit is in us. 
And so it, it, it's not hard to go, all right, who are the branches in this scenario? The branches are the believers, right? If you are in Jesus, you are a branch. And as a branch, we are told that just as God tended his vineyard in the Old Testament, he's going to tend his vineyard now. He's going to tend to the branches connected to the one and only vine. So this morning, I'm a branch, you're a branch, every believer is a branch, and the Father is going to take actions in our lives and work in our lives. And he does this for a very specific reason. How many of you planted tomato plants this year? Just a show of hands. Anybody plant tomato plants? Only one? Well, two? Three? I was going to say, usually everybody raises their hand. Trick question. Why did you plant the tomato plant? To get a tomato. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. You planted the tomato vine because you wanted a tomato. God has a vine. He has branches. Why would you want a vineyard? To produce what? Grapes. To produce fruit. We read here that the Father is going to work. He is going to work in the lives of His children. He is going to tend to the vineyard. He is going to tend to the branches. He is going to work and, and, and work in our lives so that we can bear much fruit. So as we look at this, you need to keep that in the back of your mind because that's critically important. And He says He's going to do this in two ways. And the first way He does is He gets rid of the dead wood. Right? The, the branches that are dead, he cuts off. How do you know a branch is dead? It's no fruit. It, it's pretty easy to walk up to a, to a vine or a plant and go, that branch is dead. There's no leaves. There's no fruit. There's, there's no nothing. Now, we need to understand a dead branch with no fruit is a dead disciple. And there is a part of me as a pastor and a part of our good Southern Baptist uh, lexicon of words where we go, we just don't know their heart, right? I mean, that, that's, our, that's our crutch. Let, let's be honest. That's our Southern Baptist crutch. We just, we just don't know their heart. And you're right. We don't know their heart, but we look at them and we sit there and we go, um, the fruit. I just, I, I can't, when you have a tomato on the vine, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? You can see the tomato. When you're looking at somebody who says, I'm a believer of Christ, and you're going, I'm looking for fruit, you shouldn't have to squint. You shouldn't need a microscope or a magnifying glass. It should be evident. So if you're a dead disciple, truthfully, and what we need to come to terms with as, as believers is, it's not that you're a dead disciple, it's you're not a disciple. Because you can't be a dead disciple. It, it, it doesn't make sense, right? Jesus gives his life to his disciples. If you are in me, you have life. So the father comes then, and he comes in, and he looks at the branches, and he, he pulls off the dead wood off the branches to give those who are in Jesus, who are bearing fruit, more room to grow and bear more fruit. But then for those who are in Jesus, his second action is he prunes. And most of you know pruning much better than me. 
but pruning, you trim off portions of a branch that is live. Why do you do that to produce? And the key throughout this is the word more, more fruit. I do this. Look at verse 2. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He keeps saying this over and over and over again. Verse 8, that, that you bear much fruit. Right? God the Father wants you to, to bear much fruit. Not a little, but a lot. And when we hear the word pruning, I'm, I'm just going to use the word violent. Because in a sense it is. I mean, you go get the pruning shears and you come out there and you look at that vine and you just you snip it off. And it's, it's a violent, decisive action. Every part of the Father's pruning in your life is to produce more fruit. Okay? We've got to get past the violent part of it. And hear that when the Father prunes us, He is doing it out of love because pruning is not a negative process in the life of a believer. Will you lose something? Absolutely. But you are losing something because the Father wants you to bear much fruit. He looks at your life and He says, and I'm going to use the grape imagery, and say, all right, you've got one bunch of grapes. That's great. But if I trim this right here, I can get you to produce more. I can get you to produce two. And He looks down and says, wow, you're producing two two bunches of grapes. If I trim over here, I can get you up to three. If I trim over here, I can get you up to four. For those of you who planted tomatoes this year, do you want a tomato? Or do you want bunches and bunches and bunches of tomatoes? You want bunches and bunches of tomatoes. We all want Roger and Julie's tomato plants to produce exponentially this year so that we can have our fill of tomato sandwiches. Right? To get that, that, that bountiful crop, though, there has to be some pruning. Now, let's be honest for a minute. Pruning hurts, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, it, it, it hurts. I mean, the struggle you're going through, the sorrow that you feel, the, the disappointment, they're, they're painful. It hurts. At the same time, If you're going through that, a good question to ask yourself this morning is, how is God pruning me? What is God removing from my life so that I can produce more fruit? What is God trying to to cut out of me so that instead of just having a little bit, I will have more? Because God in His great love for you cares more about you producing fruit than he does about your comfort. Gary, that sounds kind of harsh. It's true. I prune you so that you can bear more fruit, so that you can bear more fruit, so that you can bear more fruit. If God was just concerned about your comfort, he'd just leave you alone, wouldn't he? But he's more concerned about you producing fruit than he is for your comfort. So he comes into our lives and he's pruning us. So if you're going through something that's difficult and hard, ask the question, 
How, how is he pruning me? It's also just a good question to ask in your spiritual life as well. How about this question? What does God need to prune from my life to produce more fruit? Everything that just popped into your head was the answer, by the way. Right? And one, just, just one more thing as we're, as we're talking about pruning. When you prune a vine, how close are you to the vine? Are you really far away? Are you at the end of the row? Are you right up on top of the vine with the vine in your hand, right next to it? You see, when God comes into our lives and He prunes our lives, it demonstrates how close He is to us. He's not a far-off, distant God. But in that moment, He is with surgical precision working in our lives. He is so close to us. He has us in His hands, and He is working in our lives. He knows what He is doing. He knows what you are going through. He knows the pain. He knows the hurt. He knows that the process that He is bringing into your life is going to hurt, but He loves you so much, and He wants you to have a life that is defined as fruitful and more fruit and more fruit and more fruit that He will do it out of His great love for you. The Father is working even now in your life so that you will produce more fruit. And then finally this morning, believers produce fruit by abiding in Jesus. Believers produce fruit by abiding in Jesus. When you look at verse 3, Jesus makes an interesting statement before he gets to the abide part of the passage. He says, already you are clean because of the word. Notice that singular with a definite article in front of it. The word that I have spoken to you. He says, because of that, you are already clean. How, how are the disciples clean? Well, they're clean because God has removed the dead wood of Judas, has he not? Judas is no longer with the band. They have been, or they have been separated from, from Judas, but they've also been separated in a different way than physically from Judas too, have they not? Again, it comes back to the, the, the word word. The rest of this passage, when Jesus talks about the word, he says words. You obey my words, you obey my commandments. But right here, he just, he just says word. What do you think Jesus is talking about? What Bible verse? Found in the Gospel of John, do you think I'm about to quote? And if y'all said John chapter, 30, or John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, you would be correct. You got to know this verse before we get through the book of John. It all comes back to this verse, specifically verse 31. But these things were written to you that you may what? What is the next word? That you may not, well, no other translations say believe. That you may believe that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, that believing you may have life in His name. What is, what is the word? What is the word? that? Why are they clean? Because they believe. That is what cleansed them. That is what separated them from Judas, that they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and they have life in Him. 
Because it tells us that what Jesus is about to say in verse 4, beginning with the abide words, it is not, uh, a, it is not condemnation, but it is encouragement. He says, you are in me, you are clean, you are sanctified. Now, this is how you progress. This is how you grow. This is how you produce fruit in your life. Now, originally when I said that, when I wrote that in my notes, I had, this is how you produce fruit in your Christian life. And I took out the word Christian. I took it out for a reason. And I'll tell you in just a moment. But Jesus is saying, this is how you grow how you produce fruit. And from verse 4 to verse 11, did you notice a word that he kept repeating over and over and over and over and over and over and over again? If you didn't keep count, I counted for you. It's 10 times in seven verses. It is the word abide. We don't really use that word much anymore other than I'll, I'll abide by your decision, right? I'll just, I'll kind of live with it. The word abide, that's what it means. It means to remain, but there's another definition that I like a little bit better. It's to continue to be present. All right, listen to verse 4. Continue to be present in me and I in you. As the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it continues to be present in the vine, neither can you unless you continue to be present in me. Does that help you kind of understand what Jesus is calling us to do? To continually be present in Jesus. That's why I removed the, the adjective Christian. Because there's not an area of our life that should not be plugged in to Jesus. There's not an area of our life that should be absent Christ. It is only by being continually present in Him that we are going to bear fruit. And Jesus makes this clear. He says, look, verse 5... I'm the vine, so we can't, get the, we, can't get it, we can't get the order backwards. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Our life is dependent upon Him. And He makes this very clear. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can be not, do nothing. Now, if you're like me, and I know that you're not because you're more Christ-like than me, I argued with this verse. Because there's a lot that I can do without Jesus, right? I can mow the yard without Jesus. I can cook dinner without Jesus. I, I, can, I can raise a family. I can have a career. I, I can even show love. I can be generous. And I can do all those things, all those good things, and I can do them without Jesus. And if I do them without Jesus, then there are no eternal or spiritual value whatsoever. Here's the picture that you need to keep in your mind. If you do something without Jesus, you're the hamster in his little hamster wheel. You're running and you're running and you're running and you're doing all this and you're, you're working and you're running and you're running. You're running, but you don't go anywhere. You hop out of your little hamster wheel and you've accomplished absolutely nothing. That hamster is right where he started from. And if we try to do things outside of Christ, then we can't do anything. We can do nothing but Philippians 4.13 says what? But I can do all things through Christ. So you got a choice. You can be outside of Jesus and do nothing, or you can be in Christ and do everything. To me, it's not a hard choice. You want nothing or everything. I'll take everything every time. So for us to do stuff 
And for it to be good stuff of eternal, lasting value, we have to do it by being continually present with Jesus. And he tells us, when you do this, he says, look at what's going to happen. If you abide in him, verse 7, he says that you're going to have answered prayers. If you are continually present in me and my words continually present in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here's a good metric. Are you abiding in Christ? Well, how do I know? Are your prayers being answered? We saw a couple weeks ago what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Are your prayers being answered? That's a good metric if you're abiding in Christ. How about verse 8? He says, you abide in me. He said, the Father is glorified. All right, the Father is glorified. I didn't get permission to, to tell this story, and I usually don't do this unless I have permission, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I was talking to one of my kids the other day, and, and he just did a fantastic job of showing compassion to a family, of showing kindness to him. And I, I told him, I said, look, I just want you to know that in what you did, you glorified Christ, and while they may not see it, God does, and he knows that you did. And even if they don't fully understand, they will come to recognize that you did. Right? God is glorified when you abide in Jesus. Then in verse 9, look at what he says in verse 9. He says, oh, by the way, the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain. Continue to be present in my love. Man, that's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Continually to be present in God's love. Not working for it. Not trying to earn it. Not telling us that, you know, this is how you can let God love you more. He just says, abide in the love. Abide in the love that the Father has for you. Have you ever just abided in the Father's love? Have you ever done that? I'm really kind of hesitant to do this this morning. I'm going to do it anyway because it was in my notes. And, and we can't deviate from the notes. <laughs> just, just close your eyes for just a minute. Just, just close your eyes. And just abide in the Father's love for you right now. Doesn't that feel good? I mean, again, you know Gary's not a touchy-feely person. You know how I am and how, what I usually say about emotions. But doesn't that right there just feel good? To abide in the Father's love for you. And you have that feeling, and you're going, man, this is what it feels like when I abide in the Father's love. And it says, yes, so you know what you're going to do? You're going to do verse 10. You're going to keep His commandments to continue to abide in that love because you want to abide in that love. You want to obey his commands because his burdens are not, his commands are not burdensome. And you know now what it feels like to abide in the Father's love. And then he says, lastly, it's like, look, you're bearing fruit. There's going to be joy in your life. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Once again, Jesus gives us his joy he says, look, I'm giving it to you. I want it to be in you, and I want, it to, I want it to be full up. You're not lacking in joy this morning. Did you know that? Because Jesus gives us his joy. Now, you want to know what something is really amazing about Jesus' joy? We're told exactly what his joy is. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was before him. Jesus looks at the cross and he sees joy. Why? Because through his sacrifice on the cross, redemption will be provided for all people. Jesus looks at the cross and it brings him joy because he knows that what he is going to do at the cross and dying for our sins and redeeming us from our sins is what's going to allow you to be a branch in him in John chapter 15 so that you will bear much fruit. Your salvation, as Jesus looked at the cross, brought him joy. Think about that for a minute. The eternal God was joyful that he is going to provide a way for you to be redeemed and to be saved. And Jesus in John 15 says, look, that joy that I had knowing that you would be saved in your salvation, I give to you now. And we're full of it. We're not lacking. You can have it. You can live in it. That's how we bear fruit. And I have to just, I'm not going to preach. I just, I just got to touch the, on, on this, right? We have Jesus' love. We have Jesus' peace. We have Jesus' joy. That should automatically trigger a Bible verse in your mind, should it not? For the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's another indication that you're bearing fruit, that you're growing in those areas. And Jesus says that the only way that you're going to bear fruit of lasting eternal significance is if you are in me. If you are in me, the Father is going to work so that you will bear more fruit. In 1768, Lancelot Capability Brown, and I have decided that's going to be my new nickname, <laughs> Pastor Gary Capability Sanders. All right, that, that's, that's quite a name. But anyway, Lancelot Capability Brown was going about his daily normal duties, just doing his job. I, can, I, I am pretty positive that, no, that he did not think that day that 255 years later, people would still be talking about what he did. So what did Capability do? He planted a grapevine. One grapevine. You see... Capability was the vintner of Hampton Court Palace, which is located just outside of London. 255 years on, that vine that he planted is now just simply called the Great Vine. It is the largest grapevine in the world, with the trunk measuring 13 feet around. The longest branch is 120 feet. And do you know what? To this day, it continues to produce grapes. And do you know why? Because the branches 
are abiding in the vine. The branches are pulling the life, giving nutrients from the vine. And because there's still a, a vine dresser who goes through the vine and tends it and prunes it so that it will produce even more fruit. If a human vine dresser can tend and prune a 255-year-old vine to produce more fruit, how much more can the eternal Father tend to you, his child, who remains constantly present in Jesus so that you can bear more fruit? The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.